You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season two, episode 13. In this episode, I'm going to share a keynote talk that I gave in Black Mountain, North Carolina, called Naming the Animals. This talk contains some of the core ideas I've been exploring over the past several years about the role of creativity as a spiritual practice. A lot of the historical information that I share on the early church in this talk comes from a book called Dancing in the Streets, A History of Collective Joy by Barbara Ehrenreich. And this book has been both challenging and inspiring to my thinking and has caused me to reconsider the role of art within both church and in culture. In this talk, I hope to encourage artists by laying out scriptural and historical examples of what I consider to be our original call to co-create with God in beautifying and caring for the world. My hope is to challenge artists to go beyond the restrictions of the past and to reach toward a more fuller expression of our creative nature. This is my keynote talk, Naming the Animals. All art is incarnational. In the same way that Jesus came down from the heavenly realm and was clothed with skin and bone, so too our creativity and our inspirations and our revelations are fleshed out through the various means of our work. And I want to say too that all art has the potential for transcendence. Just as Jesus ascended from the earth and with him, he seated us in the heavenly realms. We, through our art, have the ability to transport others into an encounter with something of the heart and life of God, something from heaven. So therefore, in the same breath, all art is incarnational. It's taken something from the heavenly realm, the realm of the spirit, and it's fleshing it out into the earth. And then in the same breath, it's taking that which we have made in the earth and it's lifting it back up to heaven. What happens when, you know, you plant a seed, you put it in the earth, the rain comes down and waters it, and then the plant comes back up. There is no limitation or restriction to what God will use or anoint. No limitation, no restriction to what God will use or anoint. Zechariah 14, 20, and 21 tells us that the clay pots and the bells on the horses and even the cooking pots were holy and infused with anointing for a heavenly purpose. Paul anointed a piece of cloth that carried an anointing to heal. And that's not to imbue tangible objects with some sort of power. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that there are paintings in this room and paintings in your heart that when people gaze on them, healing will happen. There are songs that when you get in the presence of that song, hearts will be broken open and softened. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you guys know all this, but it excites me because I don't think we've tapped into hardly any of it yet. And this is pretty interesting, but many people in particular streams of the body believing or believing for and hoping for what they would term revival or for even the third great awakening. And I believe that there is another great awakening coming, and it's an awakening of the heart. It's an awakening of the sons and daughters of God breaking free of centuries, and I mean centuries, of religious oppression. Amen. 
And I'm going to share some things with you that hopefully fires you up and causes you to go out and cause trouble. My job description is a fire starter and a troublemaker. So you invited me here, so deal. <laughs> it's an awakening that extends far beyond church gatherings and even healings and experiences of the miraculous within our own subculture. It's an awakening that pervades every part of life and every part and every corner of culture. Without putting an air of self-importance on us as artists, I do humbly submit that we have a vital role to play and a grace and an ability to touch people in culture that penetrates deeply beyond what others have been able to do. It has always been the artists, the poets, and the musicians who shape culture, not the politicians. The politicians either regulate or suppress what the artists have led the way in creating. So for us as sons and daughters of God who have been invited into eternal freedom and liberty and co-creating ability with the heart of God, it's a responsibility and it's an exciting invitation. And um, I've really been studying art and music in the history of the church for a long time. And the stuff that, that, that I'm finding is, is blowing me away and I hope it encourages us all. But I wanna say this at first is that creativity is not ornamental. Creativity is not ornamental. Creativity is not the earring in the ear that you can have or not have and be okay either way. It is our birthright as human beings. It is his gift to us. It is the signature of his nature within us to be creative. <laughs> Creativity is his signature, the signature of his nature within us to be creative. And I believe that just as environmental and human rights issues, we have eternal motives to be leading advocates in those areas. I believe that also we have eternal motives to be the leading supporters and pioneers of creativity in the art. If we see the earth as God's creativity and we desire to honor God, is it not our responsibility to take care of his work? If we see creativity as our reflection of his image, is it not our commission to show the world the one that it came from? The first five words in the Bible, the first time we are ever introduced to God chronologically in scripture, in the beginning, God created. And he said it was good. That's what you get. You get a picture of this creator God who is caught up in rapture with his creative act. And over and over, he's like, oh, and that was so good. Oh, man, that was, oh, that was really good. And then he comes to man and he reaches down and he shapes the dirt and then he breathes. Do you know that the word inspiration, the root of it means the breath of God? Inspire in spirit. Inspiration is the breath of God. So he breathes his inspiration into Adam. Adam comes to life. The first thing that God does with Adam is he says, hey, come here. What does that thing look like to you? Ah, let's call that one a giraffe. God invited Adam into the creative process with him. God who stretched out the heavens by one word, one sentence, could he not have named the animals if he wanted to? 
but instead he invited me and you into the process with him. And then he told him to go and till the earth and to cultivate it. He didn't just make it perfect and complete because, and, and, and get this, for artists and musicians, the process will always be much more important than the product. And the sooner we grab that, the more freedom we have to create and fail and create and fail and create and fail and create and succeed and create and fail some more and create and succeed. And it's about the process and not the product. So you move on and you keep going through history. The very first person in scripture to ever be named as being filled with the spirit of God was Bezalel. It's the first time in scripture you see anybody that it spells out, he filled him with the spirit of God. It was the artist. And you move on and um, every move of God in the scripture was accompanied by a sound. It was either you know, in the beginning, the frequency of God's voice, Miriam's drum in Exodus, Jericho's walls coming down by the trumpets, Gideon with the sounds of the swords and the clay pots, Samuel with the prophets coming down from the mountain, First Kings 140, they split the earth with their sound. Every move of God all throughout the entire scripture, all the way to Acts chapter two, the sound of a rushing mighty wind and the church is born. It was always accompanied by a sound. It was the move of God has always been accompanied by that. Either the sound triggered the movement or the movement triggered the sound. And there's a book and it's called Dancing in the Streets, A History of Collective Joy. Yeah, I bought it. <laughs> it's by uh, Barbara Ehrenreich and she's the one that wrote Nickel and Dimed. Most people know that book. But she studied and she says that the early Christian gatherings were noisy, charismatic affairs that often involved feasting, dancing, songs with music and great emotional intensity. <laughs> Sounds familiar? <laughs> uh, their gatherings involved a sense of community that outlasted the charge of the ceremonies themselves. And she says this sense of community is what caused Christianity to thrive above all the other cults of the day. So that one is for you guys that are building the art communities all over the world. And you see biblical examples that even in messed up situations, Paul and Silas, what was their response? They worshiped. He said in Ephesians 5.19, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There was a culture that they had created of music, of joy. You realize the early church focused more on the resurrection than they did the cross. And I don't say that to diminish the power of the cross in any way, but it was much later in history when the cross became the focal point of the church. But in the beginning, they celebrated. All the gatherings were celebrations of what the resurrection had won. And it was only in areas of intense persecution where the church had no music and only silent expressions of worship. We don't need me to remind me of how exuberant the Corinthian church was. Paul already told us about that. <laughs> but then something fascinating happened. A man by the name of uh, Constantine had an encounter with Jesus. Historians have argued whether it was a real encounter or it was a political move. Either way, when Constantine was converted, this persecuted little cult of Christians became the state religion of Rome. And when that happened, some things started to change in the church. And I have no bitterness about any of that. I'm not one of those guys that's going to preach about what we're doing wrong and need to get back to yada, yada. But listen to this. This is after the church became the church. 
This is from one of the church fathers named Gregory of uh, Nazianzus. And he said, let us sing hymns instead of striking drums. Let us have psalms instead of frivolous music and song. Modesty instead of laughter. Wise contemplation instead of intoxication. Seriousness instead of delirium. But even if you wish to dance in devotion at this happy ceremony and festival, sounds pretty happy and <laughs> festive, doesn't it? Then dance, but not the shameless dance of the daughter of Herod. But you know what? That encouraged me because he said, let us sing hymns instead of striking drums. Let us have psalms instead of frivolous music. Modesty instead of laughter. Contemplation instead of intoxication. I ain't touching that one. Seriousness instead of delirium. The early church had those expressions in their worship and in their community. All right? And then something happened called the Synod of Elvira. In this gathering, church leaders determined, among many other things, that images were now forbidden in churches lest they become objects of worship and adoration. No more paintings in the church because you might be tempted to bow down and worship that. So we're just going to throw it away. And if you were a chariot racer or a stage performer, you could not be baptized. St. Augustine, whom I, I, we owe so much to. I love St. Augustine. He had so much to offer. He was afraid of the power of music. He said, I don't know if I can trust it because when I hear it, my heart is given to the Lord, but I'm afraid that I'm going to love the music that, that gets me there more than I'm going to love the person that it takes me to. And he wrestled. And finally, he concluded that music was okay, but it was for people that were weaker. It's in the confessions. Moving on. Middle Ages. By the late 6th century, they had these things called mystery plays. Everybody, anybody ever heard of a mystery play? This is the drama. Yeah. The mystery plays and the miracle plays were the sermons that the priest would give would be accompanied by people who would act out the sermons that they were speaking. It was the seed of drama in the Western world that was, a, that was not originated in the Greek theater. However, in 1210, suspicious of the growing popularity of the miracle plays, Pope Innocent III, I love that, Pope Innocent, <laughs> he issued a papal edict forbidding clergy from acting on a public stage. This, very important, this had the effect of transferring the organization of the drama from the church to the town guild. Now, as the church began to prohibit celebration, expression, festive gatherings, festivals, those, uh, and eventually they began to call dancing a pagan custom, period. All right? I don't have a heart of bitterness, and I'm not trying to, to smash the church when I say this. I hope you get this. I'm getting to a, a point here that's very, very important for us. You realize that the invention of the pew was for the purpose of restricting physical movement. I knew I hated those things. Pew. <laughs> pew. But here's an interesting thing that happened. And Barbara, in her book, she says, uh, you know, because the Middle Ages are also known for the Renaissance and this, this explosion of art. 
and culture all over the place. And the Catholic Church actually funded a lot of it. But she said, there may have been no burst of festive creativity in the late Middle Ages, only a change of venue. And she begins to figure out that it's in the same time that the church began to kick out festivity, dancing, drama, expression. Those things are not allowed in the church services anymore. That the carnival was born. The carnival was a masquerade. The carnival was a very lewd, debauch expression of messed up humanity. <laughs> and it was also a creative festival of dance and music. I think it's a fascinating discovery that when we shut the doors to it, it took root elsewhere. Deny men food and they'll gobble poison. And this is what I want to say. Fear and control were the primary motive of the condemnation. Church authority monopolized people's access to God and dance bypassed the need for mediation so they couldn't control it, so they were afraid of it. I want to tell you this. The religious spirit is anti-creative and it's anti-Christ. And the religious spirit is fear and it's control. Now, I'm going to move on because church history is very, very long. But all the way up into the 1700s, I find this very interesting. And you can, Martin Luther, incredible man, had his mistakes uh, as well as the rest of us. Martin Luther was a, a musician and a psalmist. He came on the scene, started restoring music into the church. Calvin came after him, kicked it back out. You see the struggle all throughout it. Then the Wesleys came back on the scene, brought it back. And then after that, cessationism happened. You guys know what cessationism is? It means that it was the doctrine that God is no longer moving in the miraculous. It happened in the 1700s is when that officially became a doctrine. Now, I find it interesting that creativity and art and expressive worship gets removed from our gatherings. And then suddenly on the heels of that, this new doctrine emerges that says God no longer does miracles. It's connected, guys. The creative realm of art is the same thing as the creative realm of the miraculous. One and the same. We're miracle workers. And I don't say that with pomp or arrogance because, you know, God just does what God does and I just get to go along for the ride. This ain't about me, it ain't about you. We're the dreamer of dreams. We're the troublemakers, the fire starters. Why? Because we're here to establish another culture, another kingdom. I say that not as we, we've already established our own isolated Christian subculture, and I'm not convinced that that was God's idea. And it's interesting that as those things began to get kicked out of the church, the church began to separate itself from the rest of culture, and so then humanism was born. And, uh, you know, holiness was never meant to be achieved through separation, but through exuding an alternative quality of life in the midst of it. Paul said, I never told you to stop associating with the adulterers and the plagiarists of the world. If you were to do that, you'd have to get out of the world. He said, I'm just telling you to be careful for brothers that, that don't live according to the gospel. Um, I'm reading a book called The Grace of Great Things by a man named Robert Gruden. And he says, nothing stifles the spirit of discovery more effectively than the assumption that miracles have ceased. 
Now here, I wanna suggest something to you. If you have all of that history coming down the line, is it any wonder that the, and, and this is changing, and it's changed a lot in the past five years even, but is it any wonder that the Christian culture has had the stigma on it of being imitators of the world creatively? What about in the 90s? If you love Nickelback, you're going to love Shekelback. <laughs> what were we thinking? <laughs> but is it any wonder? Here's one of my, it's, it's a tragic story, but it's one of my favorite stories. Um, one of my heroes is uh, Frank Baum. Anybody recognize that name? Frank Baum is the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And I'm telling you, God has wrecked my life through the prophetic that's in that book. But check this out. Frank Baum, he grew up as a Methodist. Uh, he grew up with a Christian background. But he was a playwright, and he performed uh, plays, and he wanted to go into theater. But uh, here's an interesting thing. In the 1700s, now get it, this is when cessationism happened and all that stuff. In the 1750s, it says, there had been various forms of theater in America going back to the 1750s, but the outcome of the Revolutionary War had given the Puritans a chance to rise up and start closing down theaters. Church leaders saw theaters as competition with the kind of indoctrination they provided. Laws were passed in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island, banning the performance of plays. Preachers spoke of theaters as the devil's synagogues, places where fabricated human emotions were on display. The contempt continued into the 19th century, a time when many religious leaders forbade dancing in public. Acting was considered an even viler form of expression, one step down from public drunkenness. Now let's imagine for a second that you grew up in that culture and that God had given you the gift of playwright. What are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, really, what are you going to do with that? And so... Frank ended up as a universalist by the latter point of his life. Deny men food and they'll gobble poison. Now, let me say this. If in the very beginning, in the first chapter of Genesis, when God created mankind, if the very first thing that he did with us was invite us into the co-creative process with him, to name the animals, to get to know the creator through a creative act, and if every move of God in history was accompanied by a sound, and if the first person in Scripture to be named filled with the Spirit of God was a visual artist, if all those things throughout history were the heart of God from the beginning, and then suddenly fear and control and religion shuts it all down, throws it all out, you think that God might have a plan for creativity and for art to play at least a small role in the restoration of the earth? And here's what I'm here to say to you guys. We are living in a time where I believe we're already in the midst of a new awakening. I'm not waiting for revival. I'm not waiting for something that's not here. You don't recognize it because you're in the middle of it. And we're in a season where fear and control genuinely can get cast out of our lives. 
where the effects of religion and the effects of fear and control can be done away with. The earth is groaning for sons and daughters of God to recognize who they are and wake up to walk in that truth. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. We have two more episodes before the end of season two, and we've already begun our plans for the next The Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering, which is going to take place in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in March of 2018. Until the next time, my friends, I'll see you soon. <laughs>